Matthew chapter 5. So in our series through Matthew, this is message number 8, entitled Blessed Light. We're going to be looking at the first 16 verses here in Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to start reading with verses 1 and 2. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. So on October 15, 1881, Pelham Grenville Woodhouse was born in the little town of Guilford, which is southwest of London in England. In his early years, he seemed to be rather unremarkable. Uh, His academic outlook, I suppose, was not exactly real promising. Uh, I was amused by uh, this extract from a school report on him when he was 18 years old, and uh, this is what the report stated. He has the most distorted ideas about wit and humor. He draws over his books and examination papers in the most distressing way and writes foolish rhymes in other people's books. Notwithstanding, he has a genuine interest in literature and can often talk with enthusiasm and good sense about it. So at least there was some good, I guess. Well, after school, he endeavored to make a career working for a bank, but just couldn't make a go of that. And he found his joy in writing, and he made a career out of it, writing short stories and plays and novels. He was what you would call prolific. He wrote over 200 short stories, 40 plays, and 90 books in his lifetime. In fact, he was still writing and publishing into his 90s, um, even though they said that once he got into his 90s, his production did slow down. He only wrote seven days a week, about 1,000 words per day in his 90s. Uh, And certain literary scholars actually examined his later writing and found that there was Though there was a a decrease in the output that he produced, there was no decrease in the quality um, of what he produced. Well, in 1934, he moved to France and in 1940 became a prisoner of war when Germany invaded France. Ultimately, he ended up in Berlin where somehow, and the details about this are a little bit sketchy, somehow he was put up to making some broadcasts for German radio about the war. And so he spoke on the radio about being a prisoner of war um, where he highlighted what he thought were humorous aspects of being a prisoner of war uh, and his experience, and he even sort of gently mocked some of his guards. But when these broadcasts reached back to England, it sparked quite a controversy And Woodhouse was threatened with punishment should he ever return to England. And uh, it seems like the MPs could never quite seem to work out how to charge him with a crime and how to, even if they charged him with a crime, how they would make him stand trial for a a crime. Um, And Woodhouse himself couldn't really work out what he had done wrong and certainly couldn't see how how it was in any way traitorous, but it was perceived to be. Now, He actually would never return to England because of it, and I'm not really sure how all it was resolved. I think everybody just eventually died, and so nothing ever ever came of it. Woodhouse, though, he was a citizen of England, 
And even though he had lived in France for a number of years at that point, and the, during this perceived offense, he was actually involuntarily in Berlin because he was uh, a prisoner, though he wasn't treated terribly. So this was a, a pertinent sort of, of question. In other words, as a citizen of England, how should he have conducted himself when he was not in England, he was in France, or he was in Germany. And it seemed like that he and England couldn't quite uh, come to terms with how he should have conducted himself. Well, this is something of a pertinent question for Israel in the time of the Messiah. They saw themselves as citizens under the Old Covenant. But if that Old Covenant were fulfilled and done away, and the promised New Covenant was inaugurated, well, how should they live? And we talked about some of those things when we were studying the book of James a while back, which shouldn't surprise us that, that there's a connection there once we hit the Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew. But this is also a relevant question for New Covenant believers today. If we are citizens of the kingdom, but we're not presently living in the kingdom, what law should we follow? And this question uh, has caused no end of controversy um, throughout and among various Christian groups and so on. And whole denominations have been built on the way that that particular question is answered. What law should we follow? Well, the short answer is we should follow the law of the kingdom. We should follow the new covenant law, also known as the law of Christ. And that law begins to be set forth in the Sermon on the Mount, which is what we are beginning now to study. So in chapter 4, Matthew wrapped up this first section of his gospel where he is introducing the King, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And he wraps up that first section of the gospel giving a summary preview of Christ's ministry, which included a brief kingdom preview. So Jesus' healings were so extensive in the region of Capernaum. And if you think about the descriptions that Matthew and other gospels, and, and you put this together, how he was healing all of these diseases and all these multitudes kept, kept thronging him, um, he, his healings were so extensive in the region of Capernaum that for a time there had to be almost no sickness in the place. It, disease and, and handicaps and all of these sort of things just almost had to be eliminated in this region for at least a, a, a brief time. And this reminds us of, of some of the prophesied kingdom blessings. When you go back to the Old Testament and you read about those future conditions that are promised to Israel um, in, in the Messiah's kingdom. So here's just one sample, Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 to 7. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert, and the parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water, in the habitations of dragons where each lay shall be grass with reeds and rushes, and so on. Again, that's just one sample of a description of the blessings that Israel is going to experience in the kingdom of 
the Messiah. And so when you see how that Matthew gives this summary preview, it sort of just has this effect. He doesn't, he doesn't go into a detailed description of these healings and exorcisms and, and all these sort of things. He just sort of gives us this summary, and he keeps saying that all manner and all kinds and all types of, of diseases and everyone that came to him was, was healed in that time and just gives you sort of a, of a preview of what life in that kingdom will be like when these things are uh, essentially banished because the curse has been lifted from off the earth and the creation has been restored. Well, Matthew will expand on the ministry of Jesus, obviously, as he proceeds through this gospel. There's a whole lot of it left to go. But he gives this early view just to complete the picture of the Messiah that he has drawn for us in chapters 1 to 4. Not only was Jesus of Nazareth qualified in the legal sense that he had a pedigree, he had a genealogy that traced him to David, traced him to Abraham. Not only did he have a, a legal qualification, and not only was he qualified in certain spiritual ways, which we saw made certainly evident in fulfillment of prophecy concerning his birth with uh, the baptism and the anointing of the Spirit and the voice of God and all of these sort of things, but even his actions also show him to be the Messiah of promise. As he's going all about Galilee, preaching and teaching and healing all manner of sickness and disease. So now chapter 5 starts the next major section of Matthew's gospel. And in fact, this is uh, the famously called Sermon on the Mount um, which takes up beginning in chapter 5 all the way to the end of chapter 7. It is a very large section um, of, of teaching, one long extended um, teaching of Jesus. And I've seen different ways that people have tried to divide it up, but it seems like no matter how you, you sort of want to count it and, and divide it up, you, you come up with about 60 commands that are given in this Sermon on the Mount. It sort of reminds you um, of the way that uh, they arrived at 613 commands of the Old Covenant law. And again, depending on how you, how you divide it up. But nevertheless, Jesus issues many commands. He is, he is seen in the Sermon on the Mount as a lawgiver. And of course, this was prophesied in places like Genesis chapter 49 and verse number 10. So verses 1 to 16 are what we might call the prologue of the, of the Sermon on the Mount. It, it functions as an introduction to the sermon and um, brings up things that are going to be expanded on as, as you go through the sermon. But we can note as we look at this, um, we can see that there are present and there are future aspects of Jesus' words. And what that means is that he intends for this law that he is giving to be obeyed. And when you look at things like the need for salt and light, uh, when you look at things like the prospect of persecution for righteousness' sake and for um, his name's sake and so on, you realize that he certainly is talking about living in this present world. He certainly is talking about law that is to be obeyed in this present world. And this law that he sets forth is law by which he will judge his future kingdom where he rules with a rod of iron. 
Now, just before Jesus ascended to heaven, you will recall that he charged his apostles that they were to teach, and they were to teach not only Israel, but all nations. They were to teach them, they were to teach them everything that Jesus commanded. In other words, the full law of Christ. And this they did in writing down what we have as the New Testament. The opening of this sermon is the promise of reward for those kingdom citizens who love righteousness. And so we're going to look at this in verses 1 to 12. We have the Beatitudes, the pronounced blessings um, on those who love righteousness. And in verses 13 to 16, the call to be salt and light. So let's begin here with the first part in verse number one. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. Now, by this point, Jesus was thronged with people, and you see that word multitude, which has the idea of a throng of people. And some of the other gospels capture some of these early times, how that um, you know, Jesus was, was so pressed by a throng of people that he would sort of uh, get away secretly and go up into a mountain to pray. And in fact, when you um, work out some of the uh, harmony of it all, it seems like he had, he had done just that before um, we start here in, in Matthew chapter 5, though Matthew is not making mention of it. There was times he didn't have any time to eat. He didn't have any time to rest. He was so pressed with a, with a throng of people. At times he would get away and his, his apostles would come looking for him. Master, every man searches for you. What are you, know, what are you doing? Um, kind of thing. And, and you get all of this idea in this early part of this ministry of Jesus that there were just throngs and throngs of people that were coming to him. Now, the end of the previous chapter noted how that his fame was, was spreading, not just in Capernaum and, and in the surrounding regions there, but uh, extending into Judea, to, uh, unto Jerusalem, to the, to the south, ex- extending out to the, um, to the west and to the north, to Syria, uh, to the southeast, to Decapolis, and, and all, all these places round about the word of Jesus was spreading, which is, which is quite remarkable when you think about the, the lack of communication that they had. I mean, sometimes with all of the conveniences and, and technology and all the ability to communicate that we have today, and sometimes we still can't seem to get things right. But nevertheless, the word about Jesus was spreading out throughout all of these communities, this, this word of mouth, and multitudes were coming to him. And when you get to the end of this sermon in, in chapter 7 and verse number 28, it talks about how that this multitude, this throng, was astonished at what Jesus taught. Now, the location of this mountain is, is not certain. Galilee is a, is a mountainous region. Um, some I've pulled up some maps that even will give you some um, elevation relief, and you can kind of see the, the mountainous terrain um, of this region of, of Galilee. It is a very mountainous region, and so some mountain in Galilee near to Capernaum. Um, Luke adds a note in Luke chapter 6 and verse 17 that it was a level place. So in other words, it's some sort of a mountain plateau um, that Jesus had gone to and obviously was something that could accommodate a, a large throng of people, though we have no idea how many that it was. 
Verse 2 says, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. So Jesus sat down up on this mountain, and he began to teach this throng of people, and he obviously has his um, apostles with him. Both John's ministry and Jesus' ministry were ministries that had preached a message of repentance and preparation for the kingdom. Now, Matthew had noted just prior to this, in the end of chapter 4, how that Jesus was announcing that the kingdom was at hand and was preaching, as he said, the good news of the kingdom. So this sermon, this teaching that Jesus gives, this Sermon on the Mount, presents how a kingdom citizen should live in preparation for the coming kingdom. And then we begin in this introduction more proper because the Beatitudes run in verses 3 through 12. So verse number 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word for blessed means happy, and if you were just consulting a, a pagan Greek, uh, they would probably give you the idea of being fortunate. Um, but the Old Testament concept that corresponds to what Jesus is saying here um, has the idea of happiness, but not just a superficial happiness, but rather that concept of wholeness and, and well-being and prosperity in a, in a very genuine sense. So, in other words, this condition of happiness or blessedness is, is something that may or may not line up with the outward circumstances of the person that is so-called. And in fact, you can see that contrast if you just peek down to the end and realize that Jesus gives us three verses there about being persecuted. And not only that, he gives a verse about mourning as well. So he's referring to a, a condition that's not constrained by outward circumstances, but rather is a condition that is realized due to a, a real spiritual state and condition within the person in their being. So he refers to the poor in spirit. Now, poor in spirit is essentially expressing a total dependence on God. But we're very well equipped for many of these terms that we encounter here because of our study through the Psalms especially. So we have seen as we have gone through the Psalms how that poor and needy are figurative expressions for those who take refuge in Yahweh, those who shelter beneath his wings. In other words, those entrusting covenant relationship with him. Those are the poor and needy. Why are they referred to as poor and needy? Well, one reason that the imagery works is, is because th they're isolated and they, they have no help and they have no resources. And so their only dependence, their only resource is in God alone. And that's the implication of what's being stated. He says specifically poor in spirit. He's not talking about, even though the word that he uses for poor could very well be translated beggar, beggars in spirit, beggarly. He's speaking of a, of a real poverty, but he's talking about a poverty of resources 
outside of God. That is the point, total dependence on him. And what he says about them and the reason that they are so blessed is because the kingdom is for them. This is who the kingdom is for. They belong to the kingdom and they possess the kingdom as an inheritance. Verse number four, blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted. Those who mourn, or maybe we could say those who lament, which is, again, something we ought to be well-versed with given our study in the Psalms. Those who lament, who, who is that describing? Well, we have seen that describing, in, in, particularly in the Old Testament, those who lament are the faithful, who are lamenting the sins of Israel, lamenting the state of the people because of their sins. They are lamenting the judgment that has come upon them. In, in those laments of the faithful, they're not charging God with injustice. Remember, they're just, they're just calling out and saying, how long? How long before you act? How long will this go on? We know that, that you have given promises that are going to bring this to an end. So they have a, they have a longing for that good that is to come. Those that, those that mourn are those who recognize the spiritual condition, those who recognize um, the, the judgment even. And, and they mourn now, but Jesus says they will be comforted later. They will be comforted later. Why? Well, you know how many of those laments that we have studied in the Psalms, they end with a hopeful expression of confidence. Even though the, the lament can seem so down and such a low and minor note of a song to sing, it's like they end on a bright note. Uh, they know, they're expressing, they know that God is going to hear and God is going to answer. He's not going to keep silent forever. Well, Jesus says, blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are they that lament. Oh, they mourn now. They lament now. But they are going to. To be comforted. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, meekness um, is in the, the concept here and as well as in the Old Testament. I think maybe the best way to think about meekness and is probably self-control. There is real self-control. The sort of self-control that, that can take reviling to the face and not give back the same the sort of self-control that can endure a, a suffering for righteousness sake without a retaliation without a seeking for revenge it's a sort of meekness that's being described here so the, the meek then will be those that not only do they exercise self-control but it, it, it's again expressing they live in dependence on god they're not, they're not seeking to avenge themselves. They're, they're, they may call out to God, and we've seen, uh, again, in the Psalms, imprecatory Psalms. They may call out to God for, for his judgment and his action, but they live in dependence on God, and they are promised to inherit the land. And this is actually a quote from Psalm 37, verses 9 and 11, which is particularly a reference to Israel. Now, I just want to say... And one of the places where sometimes it, it can be 
maybe a little, little bit difficult is, is understanding this context as Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, is speaking to Israel in this Sermon on the Mount and understanding then how that it, it, it applies. Well, the believing nations will also have territorial inheritance of land in the kingdom, but not of the land promised to Abraham. That land is the land that is promised to Abraham and the nation of Israel that came from him. And we talked about all those things a while back in our systematic study where we were talking about the story threads of the, of the Bible. And we looked at the story of the nations and the story of Israel, looking at their futures both in terms of judgment and in, and in terms of reward. And so I'm not going to rehash all of that. But I'm just saying, yes, there is application. Like this extends. And ultimately, what, where we end up with in the Sermon on the Mount is that this is the new covenant law of Christ. And as new covenant believers, this is the law that we are to obey. Verse number 6. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And oftentimes people will compare the Beatitudes to like New Testament Proverbs, and probably because they sort of do kind of have a, a, the proverbial type of, of form, but I think it would, it would much probably be closer to more, more we'll call it a New Testament psalm, um, because there is a lot of, of echo from the Psalms and this imagery of hungering and thirsting. And from the Psalms is where we get, uh, you know, as the deer that pants for the water and, and all of those, those kind of images that, that are hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of God. And, of course, the promise is that those who seek righteousness in this life will be filled or will be satisfied. So the, the imagery is that of being hungry and thirsty and so being filled goes along with that imagery. I mean, it's, it's the answer. You get good drink and you get good food and, and your hunger and your thirst are satisfied. They, they are um, quenched. And this is what is being said of those who seek after righteousness in this life. They will be satisfied in that life to come in that kingdom. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. The merciful show forgiveness and compassion. And we've looked recently at some of those aspects of God's character, that he is merciful, not, not in the, the sense of chesed, though, he, though he, is, he is that, but that there's also the sense that he's, that he's gracious and that he is compassionate and that he is kind um, to those who are undeserving. It's the idea of, of merciful that's being expressed. And he's saying that they will receive mercy. And that should, that should remind us of some of those wisdom elements that we've noticed in the Psalms, in, in the wisdom literature. That, that the, the extending of mercy to others means the receiving of mercy themselves. Verse number 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pure in heart are those who are sincere. They are without hypocrisy. Now, the hypocrisy is going to be a contrast. It's going to come later in the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus is saying, blessed are those who are sincere, those who are without hypocrisy. In other words, they sincerely obey and that means they, they sincerely obey because they sincerely want to see God. That, that is their aim. And so they shall be 
rewarded. They shall see him, and they, they shall see him not in judgment, but they shall see him in blessing. They shall see him in reward. Verse number 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Peacemakers are those who pursue peace, those who pursue reconciliation. They promote it. They long for it. They, they want to see it. And essentially, he's saying they're like their father. And we'll see this come up again in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, you think back even in the Old Covenant where God said, Be holy, for I am holy. And that gets, that gets repeated um, in the New. Be holy, for I am holy. In other words, be like God. And those who are peacemakers, Jesus is saying essentially they are like God. They are like their father. They shall be called his children. Verse number 10, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Persecuted for righteousness' sake means persecution that comes because of the word or the way of God. It, it, it is being persecuted for living in, um, living in pursuit of the righteousness of God. It is persecution that comes not, not for wrongdoing on, on our part, but for seeking the way of God and his kingdom. And likewise, Jesus says, they belong to the kingdom. Verse 11 continues, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Now, reviling refers to an undeserved reproach, and it goes quite along with the idea of being slandered as persecution, being, being falsely accused as persecution. But again, notice that it's for Christ's sake. Um, it's, these, he's not referring to um, just sort of general afflictions, you might say, that, that come upon us commonly. Uh, there are certainly people who... Uh, are not believers and people who are not seeking after the righteousness of God who have been falsely accused. Um, so it's not everyone who is falsely accused, but those who have been falsely accused for Christ's sake, he's saying, again, are blessed. And then verse 12, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. So when these things are the case, these previous verses about persecution and, and suffering for righteousness' sake and suffering for um, Christ's sake, when these things are true, when these are the case, he says, then rejoice, be glad, be exceeding glad. Why? Because you have great reward in heaven. So the promise of great reward reserved in heaven, where we will go on to learn that Raw, that rust cannot touch it. Um, it can't be ruined. Thieves can't break through and, and steal it. It's, it's the most secure that it could possibly be. And it cannot be lost. Great, he says, is your reward. And this, of course, he reminds, is what befell God's prophets beforehand. And when you think about God's prophets in the Old Testament and all the suffering of, of affliction that, that they endured. 
you realize that they were faithful among Israel and among Judah in times when, in general, the nation was not faithful. The nation was riddled um, with sin. The nation was riddled with all sorts of rebellion against God, all sorts of problems, and, and they were called to bring the word of God to people that did not want to hear it and they were persecuted many of them killed because of it and Jesus says you are living that way when you are persecuted for righteousness sake when you when you are suffering for the sake of Christ in this present world you are living that way and then we come to the last little part of that that opens up this introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. That's verses 13 to 16 where Jesus speaks of being salt and light. He says in verse 13, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It's thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. Those who obey the law of Christ, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. There's a, there's a purpose and there's a reason for you to be in this present, evil, corrupted world. What do we know about salt? Well, just primarily it, it preserves and it imparts flavor. But Jesus says that if the salt loses its essence of saltiness, what's it good for? It can't be reconstituted. It can't be, you know, resaltified, um, whatever that, that that would would entail. The salts become useless. It's, in other words, it's it's not serving the purpose. What what is the what's the purpose for kingdom citizens to be living not in the kingdom but in this present age, in this present world? Well, Jesus says it is to be the salt of the earth. One who claims to be a citizen of the kingdom, yet lives by any other law, is salt without savor. That's what Jesus says. Of course, this reminds us of James' um, favorite expression in his letter of how that faith is dead without works. Very similar to what Jesus is saying here. Verse 14. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Those who obey the law of Christ are the light of the world. And the purpose of this imagery is focusing on what the purpose of light is. The purpose of light is to shine. It is to illuminate. It is to make it so that it can be seen. So he refers to this city and he says a a city is not going to be built in an elevated and a visible place if the point is for the city to be hidden. It's going to be built somewhere else. It's not going to be built in this visible high location. So in other words, Christ doesn't make his people to be light in order for that to be hidden, in order for that to be um, tucked away or covered up as he uses in the Next verse, verse 15. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel or under a basket or something, but put it, but on a candlestick and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. So Jesus is simply explaining that to hide a light 
is to defeat the purpose of the light. Why would you light a light or turn a light on only to cover it up and hide it? It defeats the purpose of the light. That's all that, that his point is. It's senseless to do that. The purpose of turning a light on is so that the light can be seen and that, that you can see by the light that it gives. That's the purpose. It would just be senseless to do anything else. That's the point that he's making. And so he concludes in, with verse 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So when kingdom citizens live as salt and as light in this world, they're showing forth good works as evidence of faith. Again, much like James wrote about in his letter, and in so doing are prompting others to glorify God. Prompting others to glorify God. We might think that maybe it would be more effective if we demand that people glorify God or if we instruct them to glorify God or we do something of of that nature. But Jesus says, let your light shine in such a way that it is seen, that it gives light, that it imparts, that it does have an influence. And through that, others will glorify God. So, Jesus is is opening up this Sermon on the Mount and he's giving a purpose for kingdom citizens to live in this world and to obey his law. And the result is the influence that they have that God is glorified. In other words, that seems, as you might say, to be a goal. That's a result that is desired. I mean, if we truly are kingdom citizens, then our desire should be for the righteousness of God that he be glorified. Our desire should be that Christ be glorified. And and it should cause us distress that he is not glorified as he ought to be. And as we know that he one day will be on this earth when his kingdom comes. So as we proceed through the, the Sermon on the Mount, these, these are various things that are going to be expanded on in, in different ways. But we can see from the very start that Jesus is certainly making a statement about how that we should live. Jesus is not talking about how someone in, in perfect environment and in perfect conditions should live. He's talking about how those who believe, those who trust in God, those who are in covenant relationship with Him, how they should live in this present world given the fact that the kingdom is not yet here. Now, He's going to instruct us a little, a little while later that we should be praying for that kingdom to come. And this is a part of living as preparation for that kingdom. And again, this extends beyond just Israel, even though that is his immediate audience in this Sermon on the Mount.